You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Okay, we are going through a series on Luke, and today is something that I've wanted to preach on for a while. I find that this is a fun subject. We're going to preach a little sermon here called Wisdom's Children. In the Old Testament, there's a guy named Solomon. He is a king. And this king did something that uh, when God once offered wisdom, humanity did not. So back in the Garden of Eden, humanity had a choice. They could wait for God to teach them wisdom as he's educating them and teaching them how to live their lives, how to carry out his will on the planet and things like that. Or they could eat from a forbidden tree. Now, a little G-God in the form of a serpent was amidst the garden, and he encouraged Adam and Eve to find wisdom in a different way. Rather than learn it from God, they could be like the gods right now. They could be like the gods right now, like Satan and like these other divine beings that were in God's counsel, and they could just take wisdom straight from the tree, get the knowledge of good and evil, and and have it all for themselves right now. And they fell for that. They went for that. Now, when Solomon became king, God showed up in magic genie form. I don't know why, but he said, look, Solomon, I'll give you anything. Just whatever you want to ask for, ask for it. And Solomon decides, I want what we were supposed to have in the beginning. I want wisdom but straight from you. And God's kind of impressed at this answer, like, oh, okay. Well, in that case, all the things that I thought you were going to ask for, like wealth and all these kinds of things, I'm just going to give that to you as a freebie because you asked for the right thing. You did right what Adam and Eve did wrong. But humanity is corrupt and fallen, and if you pay really close attention to Solomon's biographer, you'll notice that Solomon takes God's wisdom and then uses it to oppress people that he does all the exact things that God always said, don't do these kinds of things, especially if you're a king, don't rule these ways. Solomon does exactly that. And in the end, his biographer is like, well, guess we messed that up. So um, during that time, though, Solomon got real acquainted with God's wisdom to the point that he talks about wisdom as though it's a being, an entity, a person who is God but also isn't God, but is. We're familiar with this kind of language in Christian tradition. But Solomon knows this being that oftentimes we call her woman wisdom or lady wisdom. And Solomon, when we start reading about the way he talks about this being, we're kind of like, whoa, bro, some of that other religion stuff from the other cultures that you brought into Israel, maybe that's what you're doing here. Because when he talks about God's wisdom as a being, it It almost sounds blasphemous. Like, check this out in Proverbs 8. The Lord possessed me. This is Lady Wisdom talking, this divine being. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. 
when he made the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. Who is woman wisdom? And why does she exist before everything else? And why is she creating the world with God? When we hear this kind of stuff, we're quick to be like, oh, Solomon, kind of toeing the line there. What other divine being did you throw into your theology? But the Jews of Jesus' time did not find Lady Wisdom to be blasphemous at all. There's a bunch of stuff we call intertestamental literature, which is a big word to say it's in between the testaments. There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, and the Jews didn't stop thinking in between those two. They wrote a whole bunch of other stuff. Now, we don't elevate this stuff to the level of Scripture, but your New Testament actually mentions some of this stuff, which means though it's not Scripture, it was important to the people who wrote Scripture because they'll reference it like some of it actually happened. Now, in the case of intertestamental literature, they talk about woman wisdom quite a bit about Lady Wisdom. So the Jews did not find her to be blasphemous. They found her to be a part of the way that they thought about God's wisdom. And when you look at the kinds of ways in which the people between your testaments write about Lady Wisdom, it all sounds very familiar. So take a look at a few of these things. First off, she created the world. You just saw that in Proverbs. Lady Wisdom's not mentioned a whole lot in the Old Testament, maybe just Proverbs and possibly Job. But that's about it. But in the, middle of, um, in the middle of the Testaments, you have the wisdom of Solomon talking about how she created the world. And you have the New Testament writers talking about someone else who created the world. Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were created through him. All things were created through Jesus. How do you make that leap? How do you get to the point that Jesus created the world? Well, if you're already working off this idea that there was someone who was God, but also was kind of separate from God, but also created the world, you have something that you can play into. And John does that. He does that in um, John 1. Paul does that, talking about how Jesus created the world and all things are made through him. Hebrews does that about how Jesus created the world. When they do that, they're tapping into a tradition that already exists about Lady Wisdom. Now, Lady Wisdom has something else that's interesting. She has a yoke. And if you put this yoke on, you are brought rest and direction. Does this sound familiar? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Put it on. Find rest in me. Jesus looks at Lady Wisdom and then equates himself to this being who created the world. He is right here saying, this, this is me. Put on my yoke. Jesus goes further, too. You've got um, Lady Wisdom offers her own flesh as food. Sound familiar? We're about to do communion in a minute here. Jesus talks about you will hunger for me. You will drink and you will be filled. Jesus offers his own flesh as food for people to eat, his own blood to uh, be consumed. 
Jesus mirrors Lady Wisdom in this way. Jesus, uh, sorry, Lady Wisdom makes people into God's friends. It's literally a story of salvation. It's Jesus going around and making people God's friends, reconciling them so that they can come to the right place through the atonement of God's blood. Lady Wisdom also prepares a feast and invites all. And if that's not Jesus, I don't, I don't know what is. Jesus is always eating. We have commentaries titled, Eating Your Way Through the Gospel of Luke. Because he's always eating with people. He's always serving up meals and trying to bring people in to reconcile them to Christ. Jesus tells a lot of parables about feasts in which people will be invited in. Jesus talks about how there's people who currently aren't invited and the world keeps trying to put them off. And Jesus is coming to say, I want them to come in here as well. Jesus prepares a feast and invites all. He makes people into God's friends. And, it, and Lady Wisdom calls everyone to come and learn from her, which is what Jesus constantly does. Getting up, telling parables, hoping that the Holy Spirit is going to translate the parables to make sense to those who are supposed to hear them correctly. So these big things that happen in Jesus' ministry are big characteristics that the people of Jesus' time thought about when they thought about God who is God's wisdom. And that throws a lot of people off because, you know, it, it comes in feminine form. But in the Old Testament and New Testament, um, the word spirit is feminine. Just like Spanish has male and masculine forms, so if you were to give something an identity, a gender kind of assignment, then it would be based on the feminine or masculine feeling of the word. So throughout history, Holy Spirit oftentimes was feminine. Uh, on top of that, you also have um, um, the word wisdom is feminine. So if you were to uh, have gender within that conversation, you would have that too. Okay, with all this being said, you see the Bible writers try to get to the point that they're trying to say, like, Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is God's wisdom. This is the person that we've always been waiting for who created the world. It's actually funny how they do it sometimes. So in Luke, there's a spot in Luke 11:49 where um, Jesus is preaching, and he says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Jesus is preaching, and he says, It's the wisdom of God that said, I'm going to send people apostles and prophets. Matthew rewrites this passage. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very synonymous with each other. That's why we call them synoptic gospels. They're basically copying and pasting each other's work and then getting the royalties off of each other. Okay? So uh, Luke says it one way, the wisdom of God sent apostles. When Matthew comes to that spot, he intentionally rewrites it in a different way. Matthew just says, therefore, I send you. Prophets and wise men and scribes. They're piggybacking off each other. When you have differences in your Gospels, your Gospel writers often want to communicate a different theme. So in Luke, it's the wisdom of God who sent it. And Matthew, Matthew just writes it like, I'm the wisdom of God. I sent it to you. So you see the Bible writers like to play off of this in some ways. This brings us to today's passage. Don't freak out. You're not, you might be thinking, oh no, he's just starting. He got to his main point. <laughs> no, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up. Don't worry. Let me set the frame for you. I find it super ironic. Last time Superintendent Rhodes was here, this is the passage I preached on naturally, and naturally I'm back in it again. It's a different theme this time, but he has to listen to the same thing every time he's here, I guess. John was a classic kind of prophet, that kind of like fire and brimstone kind of guy. He had a very strong repent 
repent, repent kind of theme. And if people came and they were unrepentant, John was one of those people who would be like, you snakes, what are you doing here? You scribes, you think that you're going to get in? You know, like John was just very intense. He was calling people to repentance. He expected them to change. He expected them to get it right. And that's all good because that's what repentance is. But he was like, if you read the Old Testament prophets, it often feels very intense. John was, was kind of in that style. Um, he was looking for righteousness and purity and trying to lead God's people to get it right so that God could now lead them back home and bring about the age that is to come. So John sees Jesus coming, and he knows that this is the Messiah, and he says, this, this is the one. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Like This is the guy we've been waiting for. And Jesus gets baptized with water and then baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus begins his ministry. What does Jesus do? He goes and spends it with sinners. The very people that John's like, you're not getting in. You think, what are you doing? Repent now. Turn or burn. And John sees that Jesus is with the very people that he's been spending all this time calling out. And so John gets, gets to this point in his ministry, this, this person that he's baptized, that he, he's pretty sure was the Messiah, but now just kind of has a few questions going through his head. John takes some of his own disciples and sends them to check out Jesus. <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of a funny story, you know, where these, these two different mission projects are kind of like, what, what are you doing over there? Like, I, are you sure you're on the right track? Are you actually the one? So John sends his disciples. And uh, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, sent them to Jesus, saying, So are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, like we've seen the way that you do ministry, like are you like the in-between between me and the Messiah, or are you the Messiah, or what's going on here? And Jesus responds by just showing him fruit. Jesus shows him what the gospel is. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind, he bestowed sight. Jesus then turns to these disciples and he answers them and says, go and tell John what you've seen, what you've heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me, winky face. One day when we have the emoji Bible, you'll see that right there. Jesus' response is to do the works of the Holy Spirit and say, did you catch that, John? Does that seem like a false prophet? Does that seem like someone who's not following God? Do, do I seem like that kind of person? Now, you almost expect John to look around at this audience who has just seen him get berated or, or questioned by John's disciples, and you expect Jesus to be like, let me tell you something about John now that these guys are out. That's not what Jesus does. Rather than rip apart someone who is just questioning him, he elevates John. Do you respond like that when people come at you? When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he whom it is written, Behold, I have sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he's got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. Sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Have you ever noticed that there are some things that, like, you just can never please your crowd? Star Wars Episode One, for example, Jar Jar Binks, things like that. After the first three Star Wars movies, there's nothing you can do to please people. You either rip it apart or you rip it apart. Or you rip it apart. Nothing ever is as great as it was the first time. And you realize in those moments, like, the problem is with you. Hey, the graphics of the first three are like 40 years ago. They're kind of bad. They've come a long way since then. Jesus' ministry at this point is kind of like that. Look, John came and he fasted. He ate nothing. He eats locusts. You should all be impressed. And instead you're like, he's got a demon. And then I came, and I did the opposite. Okay, well, I'll eat with people. I'll drink with people. And you're all like, he's a drunken, he's a drunken, a drunken, a drunkard and a glutton. Drunken for short, if you're looking for a new word. Jesus' response as to why nobody can, can deal with any of these sides is that wisdom is justified by all her children. John and Jesus are children of wisdom. Or as Matthew would say, wisdom is justified by our deeds. Wisdom is justified by our children, or wisdom is justified by our deeds. Jesus is trying to look at what him and John are doing, and he's trying to say, look at the fruit. We did it differently, yes, but look at the fruit. People are repenting. We did it differently, but yes, sinners are coming to Christ. They're eating at our tables. We did it differently, but obviously there is wisdom in both forms of what we are doing. Oh, how the church needs to hear that today. It only works this way in the church. No, wisdom has a way of working in many different ways. One church for every single culture in the world. Have you seen what that looks like? It's homogenized. You go to Africa and you feel like you went to a service of white Americans. How is that possible? Because we didn't let wisdom create the service. We took what we did and just copy and pasted it where it didn't belong. God is a God 
of all cultures. And if you want to reach all cultures so that you might save a few, then you have to listen to wisdom who is Jesus. Wisdom is a person. And we always talk about wisdom like it's just a way that you think. It's, it's smarts. It's an A-plus on your paper. It's a 4.0. Wisdom is a person. And if you want to know what the right thing to do is in any given situation, then there's a person, a king, whom you have to report to who will help you understand. I've learned this over the years. When I think that there's only one way that things can work, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and teaches me actual wisdom. So with deliverance, I've, I've had to cast out a lot of demons over the last year and a half here or so. And I remember when I first started going, there was this demon that I was trying to get out for months, months, over and over again. And I, I, I was new to this. I didn't fully know how it worked. So I would just come in and I would make it manifest and then it would smirk at me, get angry, and I would touch it on the forehead and it would be in such great pain. And I would just tell it to get out, get out, get out. Would you get out of here already? And he just responded to me, man, we trained for this. We trained for this. And he must have because he put up with pain after pain after pain for over and over and over again. I'm trying to still figure out how to cast demons out well. I understand there needs to be inner healing to get them out. But this thing, I don't know what the inner healing is, and it refuses to leave. And so I do this over and over again until one day the demon stops manifesting. It used to be so simple. I walk in the room, say, in the name of Jesus, get up here now, let's talk. But then it stopped. I was like, oh, no, I've lost my Jesus powers. (laughs) I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. And so I would just sit there and say, get here now, get here now, get here now for like an hour straight. And then it would show up. I was like, okay, it's getting stronger. I don't, I don't know how this works. Until I felt the Holy Spirit nudge me. Jamin, I'm not forcing it to manifest anymore. That's not the way to get it out. You need to listen to me. What a crazy idea that to cast a demon out, you should listen to the Holy Spirit instead of the demon. I know, I'm learning here, right? So now I start going to the Holy Spirit, and we spend time in a a, a meditative state trying to ask the Holy Spirit what to do. And he starts showing us what needs to be taken care of, and we start working for weeks on this stuff. And one day we uncover like the final piece of, of why this demon is here. And for the eight millionth time in like two months, I call it forward and I say, go to the feet of Jesus, and it shows up immediately and leaves. Like, Months worth of telling it to do this and it refusing to do this. Now it literally had no choice. How did it leave? By me stopping and listening to wisdom for instruction as to what to do. That now has become commonplace for me to do deliverance. In fact, I usually don't even call them to show up anymore. Um, I ask the Holy Spirit if there's any that he'd like to force forward for interrogation, and that happens very quickly. Interesting to work with the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of counsel. When you do that, you actually get somewhere. It's crazy. We've seen through dinner church, uh, a lot of people might look at the things that we did at dinner church and be like, that's just chaos. What are they doing? You got people almost getting in fights and screaming at people in the middle of service and all kinds of crazy things. No, during that time, we saw people coming to the feast that wisdom was setting out, that Jesus was setting out, coming and eating and joining with us and finding Christ. It might have seemed backwards, but it was working. 
One of the secular organizations that I helped found is called Jackson Harm Reduction. I'm not saying Jesus made this happen before anybody gets mad at me. I'm just saying, like, this is a perfect example of something that sounds um, like it might be backwards but has worked, that we have had people get into recovery because we've offered them drug needles, because we know they're going to use. You can't break addiction overnight. So we say, here are the needles. We're not giving them to you for drug use, but we obviously know that's what you're going to use them for. And we hope that as we build a relationship with you, you will eventually say, I don't want this. Help me get clean. And people have done that. For me, that feels like wisdom. But I feel like people would come up to me like they came to Jesus. Be like, a drunkard and a glutton. He's enabling addicts. I've seen the comments on him live articles. I know it's going around. But the focus behind it is trying to use wisdom in a way that may seem countercultural to people, but actually bring about the healing that I believe Jesus wants to do. And there are different ways to go about that, but that has been one that we've used at that harm reduction site. Do you listen to wisdom? Because it doesn't always sound like what you expect. Oftentimes with deliverance ministry, I have found myself in places that I never thought I would be in. And yet God seems to have just paved out ways to show me the way forward to get these things out that I otherwise would not have thought of, that I otherwise would have been hopeless to remove these things for. Do we listen to wisdom? If all your thoughts are your own, then you are not. Paul tells us that you have your spirit inside of you searching the depths of your heart, but you also have God's spirit inside of you searching the depths of his heart. So whatever way you listen to your own heart, it's now time to stop and listen to God's heart as well. And as he gives you wisdom for whatever circumstance you are in, you will find ways to step forward that look like the kingdom of heaven, which often is backwards and looks like the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of beating people up, you'll take a beating. That instead of, of hating your enemies, you'll love them. Instead of them um, oppressing you, you will find ways to turn that around so that they will say, what have I done? Why am I doing this? And if you do not listen to wisdom, you will respond in all the ways that you always have, and you'll get stuck in your amygdala that will program the way forward for you, just like it does for all of us. If you want to learn more, because um, I know we just briefly hopped over some passages on Jesus as Lady Wisdom. There's a new book. It just came out a month ago. Very good book called Jesus Sophia. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. And uh, I'm, I've borrowed heavily from this book today to show the parallels that scholars have been pointing out for a long time. So with that being said, I invite you as you go from this place, you know, some of the prayers that we're praying into are directly related to the Holy Spirit, asking him to give us wisdom as to how we're going to serve our community best. We need his wisdom if we're going to do that. One of the things that we think we've maybe found in this wisdom is the Greenwood street food thing. So during our ministry uh, hour here in a few minutes, we're going to hit the streets and leave cards to let people know it exists here in a few weeks so that they'll come and eat with us in the parking lot. Um, but before we do that, uh, we're going to sing a song and take communion together. Uh, and I think this is a, a, a good song to hop into because it's reminding us that we always think Jesus is going to do it one way, but then he shows up and does it another. So as you partake of the flesh that God has offered, just as wisdom has offered it, just as Jesus has offered it, as you uh, come to the table that has been set out for you, may you find a uh, Wisdom speaking to you in a fresh way in this moment.